is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we speak to Russian political economist and researcher Ilya Matveyev about this critical juncture for the key pivotal event of this century, Russia's destructive war on Ukraine, 220 days in. Putin has annexed four regions of Ukraine after apparently holding farcical referenda, a clear and dangerous escalation in areas that are not completely under Russian control. Putin has also warned that any attacks on these areas are attacks on Russia and that he would protect these territories by all means necessary, including tactical nuclear weapons. This was preceded on September 21st by Putin's call for a so-called partial mobilization or draft of some 300,000 men, in itself a tacit admission that Russia is losing the war and needs more troops. But the mobilization is in shambles. About the same number called up are fleeing the country. And give the lie to Putin's six-month propaganda effort to call Russia's invasion of Ukraine a special military operation, not a war. With this draft, Putin is reigniting the anti-war movement despite draconian penalties for anti-war activities. These moves have further isolated Putin. They mean even tougher sanctions that further devastate the Russian economy and Russian capital. And Putin's nuclear blackmail increases danger in the world. We'll get Ilya Matveyev's perspective and analysis when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Ilya Matveyev with us again. We're going to be talking about of course, Russia's war on Ukraine, which has reached a really critical point. I think this is an important stage of the war. We're 220 days in, and Russia has now had their referenda in four different areas and has annexed them. This is a clear escalation, and Putin has also warned that any attack on these areas are now an attack on Russia and that he would protect these territories by all means necessary, including nuclear weapons. And this has everyone frightened. And so it should. But he can no longer pretend that this is a special military operation. And at the same time, or just prior to the annexation, because Russia's war effort is in such a bad shape and they have had to retreat from areas as well as, you know, proclaim victory in others. He's called up a partial mobilization, that's the word, of 300,000 people. And now we see that just about as many have flocked to the borders and are trying to leave, men leaving Russia. So once again, it seems that what Putin tries to do, he, he gets the reverse. But reports that we're now seeing, and if you should read Medusa and other places, Reports from people who have been called up and have gone to Ukraine have said there's no training, no equipment, no medical supplies, not adequate weaponry, in fact, ancient weaponry. And Putin, of course, has mounted a vast propaganda effort accompanied by draconian penalties for anti-war activities. But the draft or partial mobilization has undermined all of that. And in fact, now we're once again seeing 
anti-war actions and anti-war organizations and even lists with information about what you can do and where you can find people who are active. So to get more information on all of that, I'm really pleased to have Ilya Matveyev back with us. And let me just let you know, Ilya is a researcher specializing in Russian politics and political economy. He's a founding editor of Open Left, are you? And a member of the research group Public Sociology Laboratory. He now collaborates with the media project Posli, which means after. And he also, along with William Budraitskis, um, who's also been on this show, does the podcast, which is called Political Diary. With all of that, welcome, Ilya, back to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good. And I can't wait to hear everything that you have to say. But I think we need to start with the critical juncture in the war. So we have this draft or mobilization, partial mobilization and the annexation of the four areas of the Ukraine. And I think you tweeted. And by the way, you should look up Ilya on Twitter. It's what is your handle there? Ilya Matviev and uh, underscore. Yeah. Exactly. So. You did some really, really excellent threads there. But one of the things is Putin's crazy speech on Friday, a gigantic spectacle in Red Square. And of course, you say it's completely unhinged. And Medusa said that it consisted entirely of propaganda cliches. So maybe we could just start with first the juncture of the war. And then let's talk a little bit about his speech and what you think he's doing. Right. So... um the thing is, everything is decided on the front line. So the, the fronts of the war themselves are the place where actually everything happens. And the referenda, speeches, and uh, all these propaganda shows, they're ultimately irrelevant. And on the front line, we see that Ukrainian offensive in the north uh, continues successfully. And today, they captured and liberated the city of uh, Liman. And uh, this proves that um, Russian army is unable to hold a defensive line. So they had to flee from uh, their first line of defense around Kharkiv. And uh, they're unable to hold another line of defense as well. So, in fact, uh, this is a completely absurd situation in which just a day ago, Putin annexed this part of uh, Ukraine and declared that it's Russia now. And then Ukraine just uh, liberated part of Russia, apparently, as he says. So so the absurd kind of quality of this annexation is that uh, he annexes the lands that he does not control. And he loses control over the territories that he claims that they are part of Russia. And the issue of the referendum. So even if they counted the ballots, And I'm actually sure that they didn't. They didn't count the ballots. They didn't count anything. It was was not a sham. It was just a complete fake, 100%. They didn't just count the votes. But even if they did, who were uh, the electorate? People who were living on the Ukrainian parts of uh, Donbass, for instance, are they part of the electorate? How do you count the percentages in this situation, right? So who is the voter base in this referendum? I mean, just a simple question. So they say that they organized some voting stations for refugees from Donbass who are now in Russia. So they did it in just one day. I mean, I'm sure that the majority of those people never even heard about those voting stations. And I actually don't believe that they actually work. 
I'm, I'm almost sure that there were no voting stations. So what what is the voting base here? So yeah, and, and I see in left-wing circles, there is a desire to discuss the results of this mm-hmm. referenda. And some people say, you know, we need to take into account that people have spoken. So yes, maybe it's irregular to some extent, you know, maybe it's not a perfect <laughs> voting procedure, but still let's discuss that there is nothing to discuss. It was 100%. It's not not even worth uh, discussing. And like I said, the real situation is at the front line. And at the front line, we see that uh, Ukraine continues to successfully push the Russian army. So let me just say one thing about that, because I remember in the middle of the Chechen war, there was also a vote, a presidential vote. And Mm -hmm. I think it was 98% at the time uh, people voted for Putin. Right. And in the middle of Grozny being firebombed, destroyed. Later, we saw reports. I think it was in Moscow Times, you know, that I was reading at the time that no one could find a polling station. People were fleeing for their lives. And yet they faked it. And that was at a time when Putin was popular and he didn't even need to fake an election. (laughs) But but here you go. So there is a precedent for this, but it's designed, I guess you're saying, for domestic consumption or perhaps for international consumption, because you're saying some people will believe it. I don't think that too many people believe it. But the other side of it is that that you were hinting, Ilya, these referenda took place or this election and this annexation took the place that Russia doesn't completely control. Everything Mm -hmm. happens on the front line. So it seems like this is really dangerous in that respect as well. Absolutely. And they called for people to go and vote and uh, large groups of people could be attacked by Ukrainian shelling, for instance. From that point, it was also kind of irresponsible. And uh, they, they said that they guarantee everyone's safety. But how can they guarantee that? And in fact, there were several incidents with sort of partisan warfare and sabotage activities during the days when uh, the people were voting, you know, quote unquote. So, but I mean, in general, it's not even worth discussing. I don't think that referenda themselves, they're for domestic consumption. It's more just checking the box. So, you know, we cannot just say that we're next those territories. Let's do something before we're next them. Although some people actually uh, claims that it's possible just to annex those territories without referenda. Just say that those military occupation authorities in uh, Kherson, in uh, Zaporozhye, so let's say they called for Russia to annex those territories, and then Russia agreed to do that. So there was also this route. And maybe it would have been actually better because uh, less people would be in danger during this process of voting. Yeah, But in any case, it's just part of Putin's fantasy. Because, uh, like I said, he, he annexed Donetsk and Luhansk, and then uh, the parts of Luhansk that he annexed are now under Ukrainian control liberated and under Ukrainian control. So it's, yeah. I mean, that is the other key factor, right? That Luhansk is definitely not in Russian control, even though now it's been annexed. And I think the other telling part is that he's installed Russian people to run these places, right? He couldn't find any Ukrainians to do it. And maybe I have to ask, the four, what would they be, governors in a sense of these regions? Did they come from Russia itself or did they live in these territories? 
now they're probably governors. It's actually not yeah. clear who they are at the moment, but oh. they're supposed to be governors, I think, because they were previously nominal heads of independent states, you know, in particular with Donetsk and Slugansk. As they, as they claimed. But they all come from these regions. But like you said, the majority of these uh, occupation authorities of this bureaucracy created by Russia, it is stuffed by Russians. And the way they choose the cadres for this, it's actually quite interesting because there is this guy, his name is Sergei Kiryenko. So he's a Russian official with an interesting history. So he was a liberal in the 90s, and he had this uh, reputation of a technocrat. So, like, he's very efficient, he, he knows how to get things done, and with this kind of reputation, eventually he became uh, one of the leaders of the presidential administration, right? And he has this competition, Russia-wide competition, it's called Leaders of Russia, the competition itself is not even faked, so it's it's a real one. And uh, several winners in this competition, leaders of Russia, they went to work in occupied territories. Because, in fact, uh, I think this was his political strength within the Kremlin, that he said, you know, I do have the people, I have the cadres to staff the uh, occupational authorities. And this is why his uh, influence increased within the Kremlin because he has this system in place where he can get the people to to rule these occupied territories. But he doesn't have the people, apparently, to mobilize to fight the war to win, yeah. right? Yeah. So maybe we could just shift there. I, you know, I, I can't leave this subject without quoting your amazing tweet. And maybe you could just say it, that talking about the crazy speech, that there's been a lot of press about, you said that the rhetoric was that you're used to it living in Russia, to this kind of crazy fringe, extreme conspiracy uh, language, but that now it is part of officialdom in a way, breaking, I think you said, the last barriers of common sense and self-preservation. And if I could quote you, I mean, you could say it yourself, you say, when you live in Russia, you're quite familiar with this kind of rhetoric that comes from old men in smelly torn clothes with Stalin banners at the November 7th rallies of the Communist Party. The only thing not mentioned, but certainly implied by Putin, are the Jews. So maybe you could just, for our listeners, just unpack that a little bit. It's not easy to unpack for an audience. I can understand that, but uh, I will try. So most people who listened to this speech had the same reaction. It's true that this kind of narrative is very, very familiar. It's uh, just this combination of nationalism, conspiracy thinking, extreme kind of reactionary ideas, this general uh, kind of uh, vagueness of your conspiracies. What do you mean exactly? What is Anglo-Saxon plutocracy? Who knows? Like, what is Anglo-Saxon plutocracy? It's just, you know, something. So it sounds really like these people that we do have in Russia, and the biggest concentration of these people is uh, during the rallies of the Communist Party, because the Communist Party is not really communist, you know? No. It's like... It's, I call uh, it red-brown. <laughs> yes, red-brown, and for a reason. So it's a combination of nationalist and sort of nostalgic communist ideas, and also a lot of conspiracies, and a lot of anti-Semitism. So, you know, the right. second part of this tweet is that usually these people are also anti-Semites. It's the only thing that Putin did not mention directly, 
But usually when you talk with these guys, this is another thing that they say, you know, so I can share this personal anecdote. So uh, when I was an activist of a left-wing group in Moscow, like 10 years ago, we went to uh, November 7th uh, rally of the Communist Party in order to distribute our like newspaper that was produced by our group in order to somehow try to influence, you know, this crowd. And it proved to be useless, of course. And then one old man like that with Stalin's banner came to me, took my paper, smelled it and said, smells like a Jew. And oh. then just left. So. Wow. And the, the things that this guy say is exactly what Putin says. That's the, you know, impossible part in this whole situation that I'm sure that after he did that, he could talk about Anglo-Saxon plutocracy and whatever. So this is the thing that struck everyone who listened to this speech, that this is the kind of crazy thing. Or, you know, this uh, extreme right-wing newspaper called uh, Zaftra. Also, they have the same uh, columns bashing this Anglo-Saxon plutocracy, this conspiracy against Russia, that for hundreds of years, everyone was trying to get us, but we didn't give our resources. And then in the 90s, they colonized us, you know, when Putin himself was a St. Petersburg administration. So he was one of the colonizers, apparently, because he was also in this liberal administration of Sobchak. Petersburg mayor, right? So remember him well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and now he says Russia was colonized in the 90s. So what about his own role in that? So, so yeah, you, I mean, it's a very familiar thing. Let's take it from this tweet. And as you said at the very beginning of the program, Ilya, that the most important thing is what's happening at the front. And there, that is the place that Putin can have his propaganda, but he can't control. And that's really important. And that makes this speech and and his new efforts, as you say, both crazier, but also far more dangerous. And this is what everybody is talking about, you know, that this is an incredibly dangerous moment. And as more and more of the front collapses, if that's the case, and Putin threatens to use tactical nuclear weapons, this is the issue that I want to put out there, but first to discuss just how badly orchestrated this partial mobilization has been. People are saying it's a shambles. And it looks to me like Putin has spent six months with this huge propaganda effort that was fairly successful in Russia. Television did nothing but lie about what was really going on. And as you've said, and others have said on this program, that there was the division between those who get their news from television and those who get it from the Internet in terms of what they believe or pay attention to. But now it's impossible, right? With this mobilization, it's impossible to say there's no war. Now there's a war. So he's undermined that. So let's talk about the mobilization. And, you know, he's creating the situation that he was most worried about, and that would be creating dissent in Russia. Right. So the thing is, he doesn't have a choice. So mobilization is purely this product of necessity, because probably the biggest problem for the Russian army is lack of troops, and uh, specifically lack of uh, ground infantry. That is the most important part of this war, as we've seen. Uh, looking at the way fighting is conducted, we see that infantry is uh, the most important. So you cannot fight this war with uh, some special forces, just with Marines. You need a lot of infantry, basic infantry, because it's a ground war. 
that is somewhat similar to, you know, Second World War in terms of scale, in terms of destruction. So you need infantry. And infantry is precisely uh, what was lacking in Russian army. It was just not enough. And I think that the numbers of soldiers were falsified. This is why even uh, Putin himself didn't know the actual number of soldiers on the ground, because they just falsified these statistics. And in fact, no one knows how many soldiers were there. And so this was probably the biggest problem for Russia. This is why Russian army was uh, collapsing and still is collapsing. And of course, a comprehensive military defeat means probably the end of Putin's regime. He understands that perfectly because he staked everything on this. So for him, the only option is to try and uh, hold the line at least, prevents uh, like a comprehensive defeat. This is why he called this mobilization. But then again, it was like a train wreck that you could see from a distance and Mm -hmm. everyone could see from a distance. You don't need to be like a political scientist studying Russia to understand that it's going to be a catastrophe because they just don't have the lists of people that they can mobilize. In the military conscription offices in Vincomate, they don't have those lists. So it it was immediately clear, like from the start, that it's going to be just sending those conscription notices to every person at random, because they don't know whom to conscript, you see. So it was obvious that it's going to go extremely badly. And in terms of supplying the troops, so it's bad for normal conscripts that Russia has every year. So this wave of conscripts, it's constant problems even in the normal situation. And then they say they want to recruit uh, 300,000 people. So, And so and, and you got something like 300,000 leaving, almost 300,000, right? Trying yeah. to leave the country. And maybe just, I want you to continue your, your thought, but as you were saying about how they're, you know, they don't even have the lists of the people that they want to draft. And we heard reports where local authorities are just rounding up people at, of any age. And then, of course, even older people in their 60s, which they obviously can't do. And so this makes everybody hate this war. Yeah. Yes. And the way they prioritized uh, ethnic regions in Russia is actually very scary because some people said that it is similar to ethnic cleansing. And in fact, there is some substance to these arguments, because like personally, even I couldn't expect the way they did it in places like Buryatia and mm-hmm. Dagestan. So mm-hmm. the cynicism which the Kremlin demonstrates by just pushing those regions to uh, send several times more soldiers than the Russian regions, this creates this, this idea that this colonialist kind of practices are so embedded in the Russian state that suddenly they are revealed, like revealed to their full extent. So it was not like that uh, before the war. It was, of course, it was always present. And of course, Putin's policy was to reduce cultural rights, national rights of ethnic minorities. But this extreme, like brazen demonstration that in Buryatia, they closed down schools and opened new conscription, temporary conscription offices in schools. And they just rounded people from villages, brought them forcibly to those schools and then shipped them off to the front. So while, of course, in Moscow, even in Moscow, in fact, there were a lot of irregularities, but the scale was, uh, I mean, 10 times less than in Buryatia. 
for instance. And this is this is incredible. This just proves that this kind of colonial practice is part of the Russian state. It's very deep in the Russian state. And you uh, mentioned elsewhere, I think, to think that Putin thinks of Ukraine as a colony and therefore doesn't have to even, and of course, Ukraine can't exert its own independence. But before we get into that, just more on this conscription, because Putin likes to say that he's a student of history and he revises history as need be. But how could he miss what happened to the United States with the draft in Vietnam and the gigantic anti-war movement that it created? It seems like even when you look and see lists of places where people can get involved with anti-war activities, that he's now created that as well as fortifying NATO. Yeah. So his thinking is probably that uh, Russia is different from the U.S. because it's not a democracy. So anti-war movement is not going to emerge in Russia because it's going to be repressed. And by the way, it's also a curious situation in which, for instance, the staff of the Ministry of Interior is about 700,000 people. So the police, 700,000 people. FSB, no one knows, but at least 200,000 people, right? So uh, Rosguardia, more than 300,000 people. In fact, there are a huge number of people with guns on government payroll that could be mobilized with no problem because uh, they're already силовики, they're already law enforcement. So why not use them? But you can see very clearly that he's not going to do that. It's not his plan to mobilize the police, to reduce the number of police, for instance, and ship those people to the front because uh, domestic control is the priority, right? So being able to maintain domestic control is the priority. You know, I think Kagalitsky said that this was the main reason that Putin went to war. Do you agree with that as one of the main reasons, at least? Domestic control, you mean? Yeah, domestic control, or let's say, yeah, the domestic pressures. Um, maybe not control, but the uh, possibility that he was losing control. Yeah, so I actually don't agree with this interpretation mm-hmm. because the risks were so high and the scale of this war was going to be so huge that it doesn't make sense to put yourself at risk in such a way because Putin didn't really have problems domestically in the wake of the war. So all the opposition was already destroyed before the war began. So it was like the political field was cleared completely from any organized opposition groups. And so it, it wasn't like he was threatened from, you know, any particular threat was coming at him. So uh, to me, it's difficult to believe that. I think that uh, it's the contrary. In fact, he destroyed opposition in order to be able to wage this war. And uh, already in uh, 2021, so the previous year, he was probably decided on this in his mind. And this is why he intensified his attacks on the opposition in order to have the country completely like pacified before he's going to war. So it, it works like this. So I don't I don't think that he started it for some domestic purposes because it's just... But at the same time, uh, when I think about Putin's motives, it's difficult for me sometimes to grasp his motives, because uh, I can't imagine this level of risk-taking, you know, because Mm -hmm. starting a war with Ukraine, even if you have this assumption that you're going to win, still it was clear that it's going to be a risk. So, But Putin was willing to take that risk, 
you know. And now, of course, the risks are going up and up and up with every stage of escalation. But for him, it's okay. I mean, obviously, annexing those territories creates huge risks as well. And at the risk of the nuclear war, nuclear confrontation. But he's willing to take that risk because he's a person who is, you know, he's not risk averse. He's a risk taker. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I guess that means that we, you know, I I do also want to ask you some questions about the economy, but I think we should leave that for the moment because right now this is the geopolitical situation now in which Putin has increased the level of danger in the world He'd already done that, but now it's almost to an unprecedented degree. And then on the other hand, everybody's asking, how long can Putin hold on to power? When his image in the world, he's now a pariah. He was even scolded at the Shanghai meeting in Tashkent by China and India. And Modi said something like, this is no longer the time for these kinds of wars. And so both of them were basically saying to him, Xi and Modi, that you have to find a way to put an end to this war. It's too risky. And then some are saying that this is the reason that Putin went for the annexation and the referendum as a sort of way to, I guess, say that this is the beginning of peace negotiations and the end of the war, because now, you know, we've won these areas and that's all we really wanted. But it's also, I think, says, you know, that he was humiliated by being castigated by both of these other powers that he is somewhat allied to and dependent on. And as you've said, Ilya, that all of this took place at the same time as Putin was not in control, even of Luhansk. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the effect of that and how dangerous it is now that China and India are no longer like going to just stand by and and let Putin do this or without any protest. Right. So um, I wouldn't say that China completely reversed its policy towards uh, this war because, uh, in fact, some Chinese officials keep repeating that China understands Russia's core interests, you know, in the region and understands why Russia did it. So they do not completely reject the war and India as well. And the latest sign was uh, a vote in uh, Security Council of the UN. And of course, no one supported the annexation, but then China and India abstained and Brazil as well. So they abstained. So it, it means that it's still not completely isolated. So like I said, he doesn't have a choice because he can only escalate. Otherwise, he is losing the war and then he is losing power. But also, I suspect that his thinking is that Russian history works in a way where Russia needs to be put in this extremely bad position in order to finally like fight back and realize its goals. So something like this, that he's betting that in the Russian history, there were moments when Russia was on the verge of losing the war, and then uh, it mobilized everything, and then the war was won. And this is what we're going to repeat. This is his thinking. I'm almost sure that he, he just goes back to history and says, look, so like Second World War, everyone thought that Hitler's blitzkrieg is going to be successful, but then we fought them off, and this is what is going to happen now. So we will mobilize, we will mobilize the industry, and we're going to conquer all of Ukraine. This is his goal. In his mind, this is still his goal. I'm completely sure because during his speech, he almost never even mentioned those four regions that he annexed because he's not interested in them. He's interested in the whole of Ukraine. So it's not the end goal. I mean, it's not like he fought this war in order to annex Kherson. 
It's, it's not that. So he's still he's going to fight until Ukraine does not exist as a country. But the good thing is that this is fantastical thinking. Ukraine is not going to lose because of the strength of its army, because of the strength of its people that they demonstrated so many times. Right? I mean, they're fighting a people's war, a war of defense, yeah. right? And of course they're going to fight. And it's he's healed so many of the divisions, at least temporarily, that existed in Ukraine prior to the war. Because they're yeah, fighting absolutely. a common enemy. Yeah, but this is Putin's thinking. Well, let's go then from there. And I do want to go back to some question of oil and gas. But first, you know, because he's now said that even nuclear weapons are not off the table. And that within the context of the fact that, as you say, it's been a ground war, it's a war fought with infantry with tremendous casualties. And we've seen fantastical reports of 80,000 Russian dead and injured. We don't know the exact numbers. We're not going to know for a very long time. But we also know that those who are resisting going to the front, who are leaving the country, don't want to just be cannon fodder. They know that they don't have any training. They don't have bulletproof vests. They don't have good weaponry. And they don't want to fight. The morale is terrible. So you have that. And so if he wants to take Ukraine and his only war logistical policy is simply destroy everything in sight and kill everything in sight. And then what? But let's go then to the issue of then maybe using tactical nuclear weapons if he doesn't have the infantry to win the war. I suppose he could nuke Ukraine, but do you think he's that crazy and would go that far? So it's impossible to say with any certainty. And the thing about tactical nuclear weapons is that military experts say that they're not going to change the course of the war. It's not like it's some kind of secret weapon that can alter the course of the war. So Ukraine is still going to continue fighting and continue winning on the ground, even with a limited use of tactical nuclear weapons. And if this use is not going to be limited, then it's going to be an all-out you know, nuclear war. So I don't know. I think that Putin has to realize this. And I'm like probably his generals tell him that, that it's not going to help. But at the same time, I mean, it depends on the level of his detachment from reality. And the speech demonstrates that he's very detached from reality. So... Yeah, maybe these 300,000 conscripts are able to help hold the line and at least stop the territory losses, Russia's territory losses. And so maybe, you know, this issue of tactical nukes will be kind of postponed to some later time. But in general, so what is he going to do, like launch a new offensive next spring, next summer? So it's hard to believe that. So, yeah, I don't know. But everyone else, I mean, you're seeing a lot of reports saying that this is a major escalation of the war, just even annexing the territories and calling up more troops. And no one can say how long this war is going to last. But if it's the case that he's doing this to move toward peace negotiations, we already know Ukraine said it's not going to negotiate on these terms. So what's left for Putin? I mean, he's Putin is not going to retreat and resign. That that's just doesn't seem to be in his psyche. So how do you see what's going to happen? I just want to say one other thing about this. And that, you know, you mentioned that Putin always goes back into history. And somewhere else, I think I I saw that you wrote that this war is the pivotal event of the 21st century. 
there's no question in my mind that it is. It's changed everything. We were moving in a very different course before Putin invaded. And it's kind of a crazy honor that Russia will hold the title of being the reason that determines the course of history, that you could say that the Russian Revolution determined the course of history for the 20th century, that everything that happened after the revolution was either in reaction to it or inspired by it, and it defined everything, including the Cold War. But this is such a caricature of that, and that it turns this century, what, into like, I don't even know, prior to the First World War. I'm just, you know... Asking you to kind of uh, reflect on Russia's historic role now. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, I think that we have, let's say, two options. One option is that Russia is comprehensively defeated, and this whole approach is comprehensively rejected. But there is another future in which China will continue sort of re-education Uyghurs, for instance, in those regions. And uh, the kind of imperial colonial practices will resurface in a very direct way. And it's not guaranteed that this kind of practices, you know, will be a thing of the past. Maybe we actually enter the age of wars, the age of recolonization, the age of ethnic cleansing, even genocide. And maybe this is just the first event or the most important event of this new age. Unfortunately, it's not clear. And this is why I think this is so pivotal, because, you know, there are two options, ultimately. Either we reject this completely or uh, it becomes part of our reality, this kind of approach. Well, I like that very much because that's exactly what the stakes are. And I think you're exactly right on that. And I wish, you know, I don't want to get into a discussion of, the confused left in the world. Let's just say that, as you said earlier, the left has been destroyed pretty much everywhere. And what exists isn't worth much. I shouldn't say it in those terms because there's a lot of valiant people, but there's a lot of confusion. And what I really wanted to take you back to from this is the question of oil and gas, because this is really all that Russia has at this point, right? It's certainly developed. and, And I learned from you how much more of the domestic economy had developed, even in a very neoliberal way. But right now, this takes us to kind of what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline and what Putin is gambling in order to either stoke prices or reduce supply to Germany and Europe, especially. And as you know, these are the countries that depend the most on it. And won't this push Putin into even more dependence on China as its only sort of customer, and that China will be able to, in that respect, demand lower prices, and Putin will be in, in I guess, a worse position. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, but China is already demanding lower prices. In (laughs) fact, there are already discounts of something like $30 on uh, Russian crude in Asian markets, not just in China. So the official price, like the spot price is $90 and the real price is actually closer to $60 because of those uh, discounts. And Russia's ability to export oil and gas will be limited in the future and production will go down. It's just inevitable because, yes, there is still appetite for oil in the world. And it's clear that Russia cannot be just easily replaced. 
in this situation. But then Putin did everything in his power to diminish Russia's position as oil and gas exporter. You know, so yes, oil and gas are needed, but then he did so much to undermine Russia's exports that he's very close to reducing Russia's role to just a very like third rate exporter. And with gas and Europe, so I don't want to go into those conspiracy yeah. theories about Nord Stream. But at the same time, I just must say that it's completely incredible what happened. It's not yeah. often that there is a sabotage in a gas pipeline right in Europe. Whoever did it, it's just probably unprecedented. So we, we won't know who did it. In my opinion, it wasn't Russia. I don't think it makes sense. They could just close the tap, which they right. did a month yeah. ago. So both of these Nord Streams, the, they were not operational. So they didn't need to blow that up. Although there is an interesting theory that Putin did it in order to prevent some future Russian rulers from negotiating with the West and reopening Nord Streams, let's say, so that no one has the temptation to depose Putin and reopen this, you know, <laughs> this dialogue with the West and say, look, we still have gas, we can still use Nord Stream. So if you want us, we can do it. So, and in order to prevent those people from emerging, he did it. So, I mean, this like- is really fantastical thinking, right? But, I, yeah. but, but let's just go to what you said too, because it's very interesting that there's an irony that Putin has destabilized Russia as an exporter of fossil fuels. That in fact, during the Iraq war, Russia tried to present itself as an alternative to the instability of the Middle East, saying we have huge reserves. We just need to develop them, help us. We'll be really a stable exporter of fossil fuels. And now, of course, people are seeing that, of course, as you said, fossil fuels are on their way out, we hope. And this just makes the push for renewable energy sources even more urgent. So in yet another way, Putin is undermining himself in a way. He's his own worst enemy, you could say, except that he isn't. And so he doesn't seem to mind hurting Russia's long-term economic and political interests in the world at the same time that he's projecting this new great Russia. So Mm -hmm. there's so many contradictions. And of course, I can't ask anybody to try to unravel Putin's thinking. But what are your thoughts about that? It's probably very short-term. Or, as I wrote in earlier threads, like a combination of short-term and very long-term. So his short-term thinking is that we need to do this. We need to start this war. We need to win because concrete circumstances on the ground in Putin's mind. But at the same time, the thing that he probably says to himself is that, yes, Russia's role as an exporter is undermined. Russia has so many economic problems. But at the same time, if we're able to reconquer Ukraine and maybe even annex Ukraine, all of Ukraine. So we will have this uh, Russia as its true essence, let's say, as he says, historic Russia. So this historic Russia will come back to the world stage. And then in a generation or two, it's going to be the strongest, most prosperous country in the world, because Russia is destined to be this empire. And Ukraine is the crucial piece of the puzzle. And so if 
Putin is able to conquer Ukraine, then Russia's future is guaranteed. In the medium term, yes, there are all these problems, but in, let's say, 50 years, Russia will be this huge European, Eurasian empire that is so strong, that is able to dictate its will both to Europe, to China, to the United States, to everyone. I think this is how he thinks. Very short-term considerations, like we're losing the war, wherefore we need mobilization, you know? He doesn't think even a month into the future, but also he thinks like 50 years into the future. So if we win the war, then we win this empire for centuries and we're going to be a new country that is so strong, that is so powerful, something like this. But the reality on the ground is that he is losing the war and there's not much that he can do about it. This is the first thing. And secondly, of course, Russia is not going to be this mystical, extremely powerful country that he thinks about. So, yeah. But this common sense kind of idea is lost between these two poles, very short term and very long term. This was really interesting. So do you think and that sounds like perhaps a compelling narrative to build support at home for what he's doing? Is that the case? I'm not sure. I think that uh, not many people in Russia buy into this idea that historic Russia will reemerge after conquering Ukraine. So like the nationalists... This is their thinking. But the majority of Russians, I don't think that they can grasp these arguments. No, I don't think that it will be useful. It's more like Putin's own fallacy in his mind. So he is a victim of his own propaganda, in a sense. So, Ilya Medvedev, you started out by saying that there's only two options left. You know, and I always want to ask what you think the end game will be. And you also said at one point that if there is a defeat, this will be the end of the Putin regime. I really would like to ask how you think that'll happen. I think that members of Putin's entourage will finally have questions and they will say, so you ruined everything for this war and now you lost the war. So (laughs) how about that? And at that point, (laughs) there's going to be some kind of palace coup. So very simply, I believe this is going to happen. And also we could see like, street mobilization and then we will see riot police for some reason being hesitant in terms of should we really disperse this crowd and then it will become clear that the reins of control begin to be lost so it's going to be a combination of a popular mobilization and some kind of elite tensions because the political elites the economic elites what else can they say so everything was staked on this war. And then the war is lost. And who started the war? Putin started the war. So I'm sure that if he lost the war, and losing the war would mean losing significant parts of the territory that he calls Russia, right? So not just one city, but significant parts of Donbass, significant parts of Kherson, if they are liberated by Ukraine. Uh, even without Crimea, even just, you know, liberating significant parts of these territories, I think this will be, basically, it will mean that the war is lost. And at this point, there's all those hidden contradictions, they will come to the surface. Mm. We cannot know for sure, but I think something like that will happen. Are you seeing some kind of, I guess, early stages of the kind of mobilization on the Mm. ground? Uh, In other words, the penalties are very draconian, but people are taking to the streets, especially if they think they're going to be called up. But what are you seeing and what are you hearing from people who are not leaving the country? Yeah, so this particular mobilization it was significant in places like Dagestan, 
So in the regions most hurt by mobilization, we saw street protests and something like that could reemerge to a greater degree if it becomes clear that the regime is cornered and there is no way out. And there are some cracks in the elite. There are some cracks in the Kremlin. And then people will go on the streets because they will sense this. And it will just be clear. Because, like, for instance, in Ukraine, let's say, the first Maidan, it was not dispersed, not not the second one, but the first one in 2005. It was Mm -hmm. a street mobilization. So it's true. It was a genuine mobilization, but also it was almost tacitly supported by uh, Kiev administration, for instance. And this is why they were just there with all those tents and nothing was happening to them. Of course, it's not going to be like that in Russia, but some elements of that will be present in that, you know, the right police is not ready to use full force on the crowd. Because of that, the crowd will grow from, let's say, 100,000 people to half a million people, and then it's going to be finished. Something like this. I mean, this is very optimistic, of course. I cannot know what's going to happen, but I can imagine this kind of scenario. But that will only happen if the war is lost. Even if there is some kind of freezing of this conflict, I don't think that this will happen. However, and I really like, you know, this optimistic scenario, there's also historical parallel, right? At the end of World War I, when the soldiers returned weary and didn't want to fight anymore, and they joined the revolution, and I think Trotsky famously said, a revolution is a fight for the army, and the side that gets the army wins. And so you could say in this instance that if it is the case that this gigantic uh, militarized police force decides not to follow Putin's orders, and repress the vast majority of people out there, you have a very revolutionary situation. I don't know. Everything from here is speculation. But I really appreciate your analysis. And maybe I could just finally ask you, which direction are you leaning? Do you think it's going to be a huge escalation and a catastrophe? Or there'll be some back door, some way for this not to happen? Again, I can't know, of course, with any degree of certainty. But my sense is that mobilization in Russia will help to hold the front line for several months. So there are not going to be huge victories like the Kharkiv offensive in the coming months. I don't think that is going to happen, you know, because Ukraine also has limited resources, although the army is already at least two times bigger than the Russian army, and they have great equipment and intelligence support from the West. And that is super important, in fact. So intelligence is actually the thing that helps Ukrainians to fight so effectively. So they have all that. But I don't think that they will be able to keep advancing with the same pace. So it's going to be, again, uh, maybe some kind of back and forth for several months. But then Ukrainians will keep regrouping. And then there could be some definitive offensive in spring, in summer. And then this kind of scenario is actually possible. So something like this. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's purely speculative. And I know that maybe in several months it will be weird to listen to this prediction. But at the same time, seems logical to me. Something like that seems logical to me. And of course, no one could have predicted where we are today either, six months ago. So 
Yes, maybe it'll happen. But in any case, I want to thank you so much for your insights and we'll continue to read and speak to you and bring you back on to talk about this. Thank you so much. Ilya Medvedev is a researcher specializing in Russian politics and political economy. He's a founding member of Open Left, are you, and of the research group Public Sociology. And he also collaborates on the project called Postly. And you can find Ilya Medvedev and Ilya Budraitsky's podcast. It is called Political Diary. Where can people find it? On every podcast platform, like uh, Apple Podcasts, but it's in Russian, unfortunately. Sorry. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, what we have to do is figure out a way to have subtitles. But <laughs> I did find a way to do that once, and it was really crazy. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us today, Ilya. It's been a real pleasure. For inviting me. Thank you. Thank you.